Section 1 of The Golden Scarecrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Moyer. The Golden Scarecrow by Hugh Walpole. Prologue Hugh Seymour. Part One. When Hugh Seymour was nine years of age, he was sent from Ceylon, where his parents lived, to be educated in England. His relations having, for the most part, settled in foreign countries, he spent his holidays as a very minute and pale-faced paying guest in various houses where other children were of more importance than he, or where children as a race were of no importance at all. It was in this way that he became, during certain months of 1889 and 1890 and 91, a resident in the family of the Reverend William Lasher, vicar of Clinton St. Mary, that large rambling village on the edge of Roche St. Mary Moor in South Glebeshire. He spent there the two Christmases of 1890 and 1891, when he was ten and eleven years of age, and it is with the second of these that the following incident, and indeed the whole of this book, has to do. Hugh Seymour could not, at the period of which I write, be called an attractive child. He was not even interesting or unusual. He was very minutely made, with bones so brittle that it seemed that at any moment he might crack and splinter into sharp little pieces, and I am afraid that no one would have minded very greatly had this occurred. But although he was so thin, his face had a white and overhanging appearance, his cheeks being pale and puffy, and his underlip jutted forward in front of projecting teeth, he was known as the White Rabbit by his schoolfellows. He was not, however, so ugly as this appearance would apparently convey, for his large grey eyes, soft and even, at times agreeably humorous, were pleasant and cheerful. During these years when he knew Mr. Lasher, he was undoubtedly unfortunate. He was short-sighted, but no one had as yet discovered this, and he was therefore blamed for much clumsiness that he could not prevent, and for a good deal of sensitiveness that came quite simply from his eagerness to do what he was told, and his inability to see his way to do it. He was not at this time easy with strangers, and seemed to them both conceited and awkward. Conceit was far from him. He was, in fact, amazed at so feeble a creature as himself. But awkward he was, and very often greedy, selfish, impetuous, untruthful, and even cruel. He was nearly always dirty, and attributed this to the evil wishes of some malign fairy who flung mud upon him dropped him into puddles, and covered him with ink simply for the fun of the thing. He did not, at this time, care very greatly for reading. He told himself stories, long stories, with enormous families in them, trains of elephants, ropes and ropes of pearls, towers of ivory, peacocks, and strange meals of saffron buns, roast chicken, and gingerbread. His active, everyday concern, however, was to become a sportsman. He wished to be the best cricketer, the best footballer, the fastest runner of his school, and he had not, even then faintly he knew it, the remotest chance of doing any of these things even moderately well. He was bullied at school until his appointment as his dormitory's storyteller gave him a certain status, 
but his efforts at cricket and football were mocked with jeers and insults. He could not throw a cricket ball, he could not see to catch one after it was thrown to him, did he try to kick a football he missed it, and when he had run for five minutes he saw purple skies and silver stars and has cramp in his legs. He had, however, during these years at Mr. Lasher's, this great overmastering ambition. In his sleep, at any rate, he was a hero. In the wide-awake world he was, in the opinion of almost everyone, a fool. He was exactly the type of boy whom the Reverend William Lasher could least easily understand. Mr. Lasher was tall and thin, his knees often cracked with a terrifying noise, blue-black about the cheeks, hooked as to the nose, bald and shining as to the head, genial as to the manner, and practical to the shining tips of his fingers. He has not at Cambridge obtained a rowing blue, but had it not been for a most unfortunate attack of scarlet fever. He was president of the Clinton St. Mary Cricket Club, 1890, matches played six, lost five, drawn one. Knew how to slash the ball across the net at a tennis garden party, always read the prayers in church as though he were imploring God to keep a straighter bat and improve his cut to leg, and had a passion for knocking nails into walls, screwing locks into doors, and making chicken runs. He was, he often thanked his stars, a practical realist, and his wife, who was fat, stupid, and in a state of perpetual wonder, used to say of him, If Will hadn't been a clergyman, he would have made such an engineer. If God had blessed us with a boy, I'm sure he would have been something scientific. Will's no dreamer. Mr. Lasher was kindly of heart, so long as you allowed him to maintain that the world was made for one type of humanity only. He was as breezy as a west wind, loved to bathe in the garden pond on Christmas Day, had to break the ice that morning, and at penny readings at the village schoolroom would read extracts from Pickwick, and would laugh so heartily himself that he would have to stop and wipe his eyes. If you must read novels, he would say, read Dickens, nothing to offend the youngest among us, fine breezy stuff with an optimism that does you good and people you get to know and be fond of by jove i can still cry over little nell and am not ashamed of it he had the heartiest contempt for wasters and failures and he was afraid there were a great many in the world give me a man who is a man he would say a man who can hit a ball for six, run ten miles before breakfast, and take his knocks with the best of them. Wasn't it Browning who said, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. Browning was a great teacher, after Tennyson, one of our greatest. Where are such men today? He was, therefore, in spite of his love for outdoor pursuits, a cultured man. It was natural, perhaps, that he should find Hugh Seymour a pity. Nearly everything that he said about Hugh Seymour began with the words, It's a pity that. It's a pity that you can't get some red into your cheeks, my boy. It's a pity you don't care about porridge you must learn to like it. It's a pity you can't even make a little progress with your mathematics. It's a pity you told me a lie, because... It's a pity you were rude to Mrs. Lasher, no gentleman. It's a pity you weren't attending when... 
Mr. Lasher was, very earnestly, determined to do his best for the boy, and, as he said, "'You see, Hugh, if we do our best for you, you must do your best for us. Now I can't, I'm afraid, call this your best.' Hugh would have liked to say that it was the best that he could do in that particular direction, very probably Euclid, but if only he might be allowed to try his hand in quite another direction, he might do something very fine indeed. He never, of course, had a chance of saying this, nor would such a declaration have greatly benefited him, because, for Mr. Lasher, there was only one way for everyone, and the sooner, if you were a small boy, you followed it, the better. "'Don't dream, Hugh,' said Mr. Lasher. "'Remember that no man ever did good work by dreaming. The goal is to the strong. Remember that.' Hugh did remember it, and would have liked very much to be as strong as possible, but whenever he tried feats of strength, he failed and looked foolish. "'My dear boy, that's not the way to do it,' said Mr. Lasher. "'It's a pity that you don't listen to what I tell you.'" Part 2 A very remarkable fact about Mr. Lasher was this, that he paid no attention whatever to the county in which he lived. Now there are certain counties in England where it is possible to say, I am in England, and to leave it at that. Their quality is simply English, with no more individual personality. But Glebeshire has such an individuality, whether for good or evil, that it forces comment from the most sluggish and inattentive of human beings. Mr. Lasher was perhaps the only soul, living or dead, who succeeded in living in it during forty years. He is still there. He is a canon now in Polchester, and never saying anything about it. When on his visits to London people inquired his opinion of Glebeshire, he would say, Ah, well, I'm afraid Methodism and intemperance are very strong. All the same, we're fighting him, fighting him. This was the more remarkable in that Mr. Lasher lived upon the very edge of Roche St. Mary Moor, a stretch of moor and sand. Roche St. Mary Moor, that runs to the sea, contains the ruins of St. Arthy Church, buried until lately in the sand, but recently excavated through the kind generosity of Sir John Portcullis of Borges, and shown to visitors six pence a head, Wednesday and Saturday afternoons free. And in one of the most romantic, mist-laden, moon-silvered, tempest-driven spots in the whole of Great Britain. The road that ran from Clinton St. Mary to Borges across the moor was certainly a wild, rambling, beautiful affair, and when the sea mists swept across it, and the wind carried the cry of the bell of Trezent Rock in and out, above and below, you had a strange and moving experience. Mr. Lasher was certainly compelled to ride on his bicycle from Clinton St. Mary to Borges and back again, and never thought it either strange or moving. Only ten at the Bible meeting tonight. Borges wants waking up. We'll see what open-air services can do. What the Moor thought about Mr. Lasher, it is impossible to know. Hugh Seymour thought about the Moor continually, but he was afraid to mention his ideas of it in public. There was a legend in the village that several hundred years ago some pirates, driven by storm into Borges, found their way on to the moor, and, caught by the mist, perished there. They are to be seen, says the village, in powdered wigs, red coats, gold lace, and swords, 
haunting the sand dunes god help the poor soul who may fall into their hands this was a very pleasant story and hugh seymour's thoughts often crept around and about it he would like to find a pirate to bring him to the vicarage and present him to mr lasher he knew that mrs lasher would say fancy a pirate well now fancy well here's a pirate and that mr lasher would say it's a pity hugh that you don't choose your company more carefully look at the man's nose hugh although he was only eleven knew this hugh did on one occasion mention the pirates dreaming again hugh pity they fill your head with such nonsense if they read their bibles more nevertheless hugh continued his dreaming he dreamt of the moor of the pirates of the cobbled street in borges of the cry of the trezent bell of the deep lanes and the smell of the flowers in them of making five hundred not out at cricket of doing a problem in euclid to mr lasher's satisfaction of having a collar at the end of the week as clean as it had been at the beginning of discovering the way to make a straight parting in the hair of not wriggling in bed when mrs lasher kissed him at night of many many other things he was at this time a very lonely boy until mr pigeon paid his visit he was most remarkably lonely after that visit he was never lonely again part three mr pigeon came on a visit to the vicarage three days before christmas hugh seymour saw him first from the garden mr pigeon was standing at the window of mr lasher's study he was staring in front of him at the sheets of light that flashed and darkened and flashed again across the lawn at the green cluster of holly berries by the drive gate at the few flakes of snow that fell lazily carelessly as though they were trying to decide whether they would make a grand affair of it or not and perhaps at the small grubby boy who was looking at him with one eye and trying to learn the collect for the day it was sunday with the other hugh had never before seen any one in the least like mr pigeon he was short and round and his head was covered with tight little curls his cheeks were chubby and red and his nose small his mouth also very small he had no chin he was wearing a bright blue velvet waistcoat with brass buttons and over his black shoes there shone white spats hugh had never seen white spats before mr pigeon shone with cleanliness and he had supremely the air of having been exactly as he was all in one piece years ago he was like one of the china ornaments in mrs lasher's drawing-room that the housemaid is told to be so careful about and concerning whose destruction hugh heard her on at least one occasion declaring in a voice half tears half defiance please ma'am it wasn't me it just slipped of itself mr pigeon would break very completely were he dropped the first thing about him that struck hugh was his amazing difference from mr lasher it seemed strange that any two people so different could be in the same house mr lasher never gleamed or shone he would not break with however violent an action you dropped him he would certainly never wear white spats hugh liked mr pigeon at once they spoke for the first time at the midday meal when mr lasher said more yorkshire pudding pigeon 
and Mr. Pigeon said, I adore it. Now Yorkshire pudding happened to be one of Hugh's special passions just then, particularly when it was very brown and crinkly, so he said, quite spontaneously and without taking thought, as he was always told to do, so do I. My dear Hugh, said Mrs. Lasher, how very greedy, fancy, after all you've been told, well, well, manners, manners. I don't know, said Mr. Pigeon, his mouth was full, I said it first, and I'm older than he is, I should know better. I like boys to be greedy, it's a good sign, a good sign. Besides, Sunday, after a sermon, one naturally feels a bit peckish. Good enough sermon, Lasher, but a bit long. Mr. Lasher, of course, did not like this, and, indeed, it was evident to anyone, even to a small boy, that the two gentlemen would have different opinions upon every possible subject. However, Hugh loved Mr. Pigeon there and then, and decided that he would put him into the story then running, appearing in nightly numbers from the moment of his departure to bed to the instant of slumber, say ten minutes. He would also, in the imaginary cricket matches that he worked out on paper, give Mr. Pigeon an innings of two hundred not out and make him captain of Kent. He now observed the vision very carefully and discovered several strange items in his general behavior. Mr. Pigeon was fond of whistling and humming to himself. He was restless and would walk up and down a room with his head in the air and his hands behind his broad back, humming, out of tune, Sally in our alley or drink to me only. Of course this amazed Mr. Lasher. He would quite suddenly stop, stand like a top spinning, balanced on his toes, and cry, Ah, now I've got it. No, I haven't. Yes, I have. By God, it's gone again. To this also Mr. Lasher strongly objected, and Hugh heard him say, Really, Pigeon, think of the boy, think of the boy. And Mr. Pigeon exclaimed, By God, so I should beg pardon, Lasher, won't do it again. Lord, save me, I'm a careless old drunkard. He had any number of strange phrases that were new and brilliant and exciting to the boy who listened to him. He would say, By the martyrs of Ephesus, or sunshine and thunder, or God stir your slumbers, when he thought anyone very stupid. He said this last one day to Mrs. Lasher, and of course she was very much astonished. She did not from the first like him at all. Mr. Pigeon and Mr. Lasher had been friends at Cambridge, and had not met one another since, and everyone knows that that is a dangerous basis for the renewal of friendship. They had a little dispute on the very afternoon of Mr. Pigeon's arrival, when Mr. Lasher asked his guest whether he played golf. "'God preserve my soul, no,' said Mr. Pigeon. Mr. Lasher then explained that playing golf made one thin, hungry, and self-restrained. Mr. Pigeon said that he did not wish to be the first or last of these, and that he was always the second, and that golf was turning the fair places of England into troughs for the moneyed pigs of the stock exchange to swill in. "'My dear Pigeon,' cried Mr. Lasher, I'm afraid no one could call me a moneyed pig with any justice, more's the pity, and a game of golf to me is... Ah, you're a parson lasher, said his guest. In fact, by the evening of the second day of the visit, it was obvious that 
Clinton St. Mary Vicarage might, very possibly, witness a disturbed Christmas. It was all very tiresome for poor Mrs. Lasher. On the late afternoon of Christmas Eve, Hugh heard the stormy conversation that follows, a conversation that altered the colour and texture of his afterlife, as such things may when one is still a child. Part 4 Christmas Eve was always, to Hugh, a day with glamour. He did not any longer hang up his stocking, although he would greatly have liked to do so, but all day his heart beat thickly at the thought of the morrow, at the thought of something more than the giving and receiving of presents, something more than the eating of food, something more than singing hymns that were delightfully familiar, something more than putting holly over the pictures and hanging mistletoe onto the lamp in the hall, something there was in the day like going home, like meeting people again whom one had loved once and not seen for many years, something as warm and romantic and lightly coloured and as comforting as the most inspired and impossible story that one could ever, lying in bed and waiting for sleep, invent. Today there was no snow but a frost, and there was a long bar of saffron below the cold sky and a round red ball of a sun. Hugh was sitting in a corner of Mr. Lasher's study, looking at Dore's Don Quixote, when the two gentlemen came in. He was sitting in a dark corner, and they, because they were angry with one another, did not recognize any one except themselves. Mr. Lasher pulled furiously at his pipe, and Mr. Pigeon stood up by the fire with his short fat legs spread wide and his mouth smiling, but his eyes vexed and rather indignant. "'My dear Pigeon,' said Mr. Lasher, "'you misunderstand me, you do indeed. "'It may be I would be the first to admit that, "'like most men, I have my weakness, "'that I lay too much stress upon the healthy, physical, normal life, "'upon seeing things as they are, "'and not as one would like to see them to be.' I don't believe that dreaming ever did any good to any man. It's only produced some of the finest literature the world has ever known, said Mr. Pigeon. Ah, genius, if you or I were geniuses, Pigeon, that would be another affair. But we're not. We're plain, commonplace, humdrum human beings with souls to be saved and work to do, work to do. There was a little pause after that, and Hugh, looking at Mr. Pigeon, saw the hurt look in his eyes deepen. Come now, Lasher, he said at last. Let's be honest one with another. That's your line, and you say it ought to be mine. Come now, as man to man, you think me a damnable failure now. Beg pardon, complete failure, don't you? Don't be afraid of hurting me. I want to know. Mr. Lasher was really a kindly man, and when his eyes beheld things, there were, of course, many things that they never beheld, he would do his best to help anybody. He wanted to help Mr. Pigeon now, but he was also a truthful man. My dear Pigeon, ha ha, what a question! I'm sure many, many people enjoy your books immensely. I'm sure they do, oh yes. Come now, Lasher, the truth. You won't hurt my feelings. If you were discussing me with a third person, you'd say, wouldn't you, Ah, poor Pigeon might have done something if he hadn't let his fancy run away with him. I was with him at Cambridge. 
he promised well but i'm afraid one must admit that he's failed he would never stick to anything now this was so exactly what mr lasher had on several occasions said about his friend that he was really for the moment at a loss he pulled at his pipe looked very grave and then said my dear pigeon you must remember our lives have followed such different courses i can only give you my point of view i don't myself care greatly for romances fairy tales and so on it seems to me that for a grown-up man however i don't pretend to be a literary fellow i have other work other duties picturesque but nevertheless necessary ah exclaimed mr pigeon who considering that he had invited his host's honest opinion should not have become irritated because he had obtained it that's just it you people all think only you know what is necessary why shouldn't a fairy story be as necessary as a sermon a lot more necessary i dare say you think you're the only people who can know anything about it you people never use your imaginations nevertheless said mr lasher very bitterly for he had always said if one does not bring one's imagination into one's work one's work is of no value writers of idle tales are not the only people who use their imaginations and if you will allow me without offence to say so pigeon your books even amongst other things of the same sort have not been the most successful this remark seemed to pour water upon all the anger in mr pigeon's heart his eyes expressed scorn but not now for mr lasher for himself his whole figure drooped and was bowed like a robin in a thunderstorm that's true enough bless my soul lasher that's true enough they hardly sell at all i've written a dozen of them now the blue pouncet box the three-tailed griffin the tree without any branches but you don't want to be bothered with the names of them the griffin went into two editions but it was only because the pictures were rather sentimental i've often said to myself if a thing doesn't sell in these days it must be good but i've not really convinced myself i'd like them to have sold always until now i've had hopes of the next one and thought that it would turn out better like a woman with her babies i seem to have given up expecting that now it isn't you know being always hard up that i mind so much although that mind you isn't pleasant no by jehoshaphat it isn't but we would like now and again to find that other people have enjoyed what one hoped they would enjoy but i don't know they always seem too old for children and too young for grown-ups my stories i mean it was one of the hardest traits in mr lasher's character as hugh well realized to rub it in over a fallen foe he considered this his duty it was also i am afraid a pleasure it's a pity he said that things should not have gone better but there are so many writers to-day that i wonder any one writes at all we live in a practical realistic age the leaders amongst us have decided that every man must gird his loins and go out to fight his battles with real weapons in a real cause not sit dreaming at his windows looking down upon the busy market-place mr lasher loved what he called images there were many 
in his sermons. But, my dear pigeon, it is in no way too late. Give up your fairy stories now that they have been proved a failure. Here, Mr. Pigeon, in the most astonishing way, was suddenly in a terrible temper. They're not, he almost screamed, not at all. Failures from the worldly point of view, yes, but there are some who understand. I would not have done anything else if I could. You, Lasher, with your soup tickets and your choir treats, think there's no room for me and my fairy stories. I tell you, you may find yourself jolly well mistaken one of these days. Yes, by Caesar, you may. How do you know what's best worth doing? If you'd listened a little more to the things you were told when you were a baby, you'd be a more intelligent man now. When I was a baby, said Mr. Lasher incredulously, as though that were a thing that he never possibly could have been. My dear pigeon! Ah, you think it absurd, said the other, a little cooler again. But how do you know who watched over your early years and wanted you to be a dreamy fairy-tale kind of person instead of the cayenne-pepper sort of man you are? There's always someone there, I tell you, and you can have your choice whether you'll believe more than you see all your life or less than you see. Every baby knows about it. Then, as they grow older, it fades, and with many people goes altogether. He's never left me, St. Christopher, you know, and that's one thing. Of course, the ideal thing is somewhere between the two. Recognize St. Christopher and see the real world as well. I'm afraid neither you nor I is the ideal man, Lasher. Why, I tell you, any baby of three knows more than you do. You're proud of never seeing beyond your nose. I'm proud of never seeing my nose at all. We're both wrong. But I am ready to admit your uses. You never will admit mine. And it isn't any use you're denying my friend. He stayed with you a bit when you just arrived, but I expect he soon left you. You're jolly glad he did. My dear pigeon, said Mr. Lasher, I haven't understood a word. Pigeon shook his head. You're right. That's just what's the matter with me. I can't even put what I see plainly. He sighed deeply. I've failed. There's no doubt about it. But although I know that, I've had a happy life. That's the funny part of it. I've enjoyed it more than you ever will, Lasher. At least I'm never lonely. I like my food, too, and one's head's always full of jolly ideas if only they seemed jolly to other people. "'Upon my word, Pigeon,' said Mr. Lasher. At this moment, Mrs. Lasher opened the door. "'Well, well, fancy sitting over the fire talking. Oh, you men! Tea, 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 Will! Fancy talking all the afternoon. Well!' No one had noticed Hugh. He, however, had understood Mr. Pigeon better than Mr. Lasher did. Part 5 This conversation aroused in Hugh, for various reasons, the greatest possible excitement. He would have liked to have asked Mr. Pigeon many questions. Christmas Day came, and a beautiful day enthroned it. A pale blue sky, faint and clear, was a background to misty little clouds that hovered, then fled and disappeared, and from these 
flakes of snow fell now and then across the shining sunlight early in the winter afternoon a moon like an orange feather sailed into the sky as the lower stretches of blue changed into saffron and gold trees and hills and woods were crystal clear and shone with an intensity of outline as though their shapes had been cut by some giant knife against the background although there was no wind the air was so expectant that the ringing of church bells and the echo of voices came as though across still water the colour of the sunlight was caught in the cups and runnels of the stiff frozen roads and a horse's hoofs echoed sharp and ringing over fields and hedges the ponds were silvered into a sheet of ice so thin that the water showed dark beneath it all the trees were rimmed with hoar-frost on christmas afternoon when three o'clock had just struck from the church tower hugh and mr pigeon met as though by some conspirator's agreement by the garden gate they had said nothing to one another and yet there they were they both glanced anxiously back at the house and then mr pigeon said suppose we take a walk thank you very much said hugh tea isn't till half past four very well then suppose you lead the way they walked a little and then hugh said i was there yesterday in the study when you talked all that about your books and everything the words came from him in little breathless gusts because he was excited mr pigeon stopped and looked upon him thunder and sunshine you don't say so what under heaven were you doing i was reading and you came in and then i was interested well hugh dropped his voice i understood all that you meant i'd like to read your books if i may we haven't any in the house bless my soul here's someone wants to read my books mr pigeon was undoubtedly pleased i'll send you some i'll send you them all hugh gasped with pleasure i'll read them all however many there are he said excitedly every word well said mr pigeon that's more than anyone else has ever done i'd rather be with you said the boy very confidently than mr lasher i'd rather write stories than preach sermons that no one wants to listen to then more timidly he continued i know what you meant about the man who comes when you're a baby i remember him quite well but i never can say anything because they'd say i was silly sometimes i think he's still hanging round only he doesn't come to the vicarage much he doesn't like mr lasher much i expect but i do remember him he had a beard and i used to think it funny the nurse didn't see him that was before we went to ceylon you know we used to live in polchester then when it was nearly dark and not quite he'd be there i forgot about him in ceylon but since i've been here i've wondered it's sometimes like someone whispering to you and you know if you turn round he won't be there but he is there all the same i made twenty-five last summer against porthington grammar they're not much good really and it was our second eleven and i was nearly out second ball anyway i made twenty-five and afterwards as i was ragging about i suddenly thought of him i know he was pleased if it had been a little darker i believe i'd have seen him and then last night after i was in bed and was thinking about what you'd said i know he was near the window only i didn't look lest he should go away but of course mr lasher would say that's all rot like the pirates only i know it isn't hugh broke off for lack of breath 
nothing else would have stopped him. When he was encouraged, he was a terrible talker. He suddenly added, in a sharp little voice like the report from a pistol, "'So one can't be lonely or anything, can one, if there's always someone about?' Mr. Pigeon was greatly touched. He put his hand upon Hugh's shoulder. "'My dear boy,' he said, "'my dear boy, dear me, dear me, I'm afraid you're going to have a dreadful time when you grow up. I really mustn't encourage you. And yet, who can help himself?' "'But you said yourself that you'd seen him, that you knew him quite well.' and so i do and so i do but you'll find as you grow older there are many people who won't believe you and there's this too the more you live in your head dreaming and seeing things that aren't there the less you'll see the things that are there you'll always be tumbling over things you'll never get on you'll never be a success "'Never mind,' said Hugh. "'It doesn't matter much what you say now. "'You're only talking for my good, like Mr. Lasher. "'I don't care. "'I heard what you said yesterday, and it's made all the difference. "'I'll come and stay with you.' "'Well, so you shall,' said Mr. Pigeon. "'I can't help it. "'You shall come as often as you like. "'Upon my soul, I'm younger today than I've felt for a long time. We'll go to the pantomime together, if you aren't too old for it. I'll manage to ruin you all right. What's that shining? He pointed in front of him. They had come to a rise in the Polwint Road. To their right, running to the very foot of their path, was the moor. It stretched away like a cloud, vague and indeterminate to the horizon. To their left, a dark brown field rose in an ascending wave to a ridge that cut the sky, now crocus-colored. The field was lit with the soft light of the setting sun. On the ridge of the field, something, suspended, it seemed, in mid-air, was shining like a golden fire. "'What's that?' said Mr. Pigeon again. "'It's hanging. What the devil?' They stopped for a moment, then started across the field. When they had gone a little way, Mr. Pigeon paused again. "'It's like a man with a golden helmet. He's got legs. He's coming to us.' They walked on again. Then Hugh cried, why, it's only an old scarecrow. We might have guessed. The sun, at that instant, sank behind the hills, and the world was grey. The scarecrow, perched on the high ridge, waved its tattered sleeves in the air. It was an old tin can that had caught the light. The can, hanging over the stake that supported it in drunken fashion, seemed to wink at them. The shadows came streaming up from the sea, and the dark woods below in the hollow drew closer to them. The scarecrow seemed to lament the departure of the light. "'Here, mind,' he said to the two of them, "'you saw me in my glory just now, and don't you forget it. I may be a knight in shining armor, after all. It only depends upon the point of view. So it does, said Mr. Pigeon, taking his hat off. You were very fine. I shan't forget. Part 6 They stood there in silence for a time. Part 7 at last they turned back and walked slowly home, the intimacy of their new friendship growing with their silence. Hugh was happier than he had ever been before. 
behind the quiet evening light he saw wonderful prospects a new life in which he might dream as he pleased a new friend to whom he might tell these dreams a new confidence in his own power but it was not to be that very night mr pigeon died very peacefully in his sleep from heart failure he had had as he had himself said a happy life part eight years passed and hugh seymour grew up i do not wish here to say much more about him it happened that when he was twenty-four his work compelled him to live in that square in london known as march square it will be very carefully described in a minute here he lived for five years and during that time he was happy enough to gain the intimacy and confidence of some of the children who played in the gardens there they trusted him and told him more than they told many people he had never forgotten mr pigeon that walk that vision of the scarecrow stood as such childish things will for a landmark in his history he came to believe that those experiences that he knew in his own life to be true were true also for some others that's as it may be i can only say that barbara and angelina bim and even sarah trefusis were his friends i dare say his theory is all wrong i can only say that i know that they were his friends perhaps after all the scarecrow is shining somewhere in golden armor perhaps after all one need not be so lonely as one often fancies that one is end of prologue